This is Mandite and the Apprentice Mage, Book One of the Mandite Chronicles, written and narrated by Stu Venable. Chapter 16. Ikoha Smirt is even more unpleasant a place than the name suggests. It's an ugly name and an even uglier place. I'm told its name is derived from the lost language the old Northmen used to speak. They say the name means harsh hold in that long dead language, but no one really knows for certain. Apart from being a cold, harsh, dangerous, violent, and all-around terrible place, it's also the city where Xavier and I were born, and our mother still lived there. I had decided the day prior that I would take a few hours to visit with her, for I would receive no end of grief if Xavier found I had come here and didn't visit her. I decided to take Jas with me, so she could see my humble beginnings. The farm where I grew up looked much the same as it did when I left for the Collegium when I was 16. All the land up here was harsh and hard to farm, but a few tough nuts attempted to do so anyway, and among those nuts were my mother and father. Father had taken ill and died when I was only six, and my brother and I worked as farmhands until we each showed magical talent and were recruited into the Collegium. After I left, my brother having been recruited more than a decade before, my mother had to hire hands to work the farm. This greatly reduced the profitability of the farm, but it looked like things had been well-maintained in spite of the loss of revenue. The old farmhouse was made of stone and plaster. The old thatch roof had been replaced with wood shingles and appeared to be in good order. Much to my surprise, there was a new structure near the old barn, a worker's barracks. It looked large enough to house four workers, perhaps more. I could see workers in the field harvesting root vegetables, carrots, parsnips, and turnips, I guessed. The farm where I was born was far outside the walls of the city proper, though the city was within sight. There were four fields, each almost an acre in size. Two were left fallow to replenish the vital nutrients of the soil. The other two were planted. One was ready to harvest, and that's where the farmhands labored. The other showed small sprouts of plants that would be ready for harvest in a few months. Jas and I approached the farmhouse, and I knocked on the door. Oh, bless it! I'll be right there, I heard my mother say. Her voice was older, certainly, but I still recognized it. She opened the door, and much of what I remembered still held true. She was plump and short, with a broad smile that grew even broader as she recognized me. I had missed the years when her hair turned gray, and it was now almost pale, brittle yellow. The wrinkles and sags of her face and chin weren't there when I had left. She looked ancient. Gods, had I really been gone that long? Mandite? she said, not sure she was looking at her youngest son. Hello, mother, I replied with a smile. I was almost in tears. It had been so long since I had seen my mother— the woman who gave me the precious gift of life, the woman who had raised me and taught me and scolded me when I was bad. I was then put upon with a fierce, strong hug around my midsection, as I was more than a foot taller than she. It felt good, though I was taller now than when I had last hugged my mother. I wrapped my arms gently around her and returned the hug. 
We held each other for a long time, and I relished it, embracing this strong but kind woman. She pulled me into the farmhouse and sat me down at the table in a flourish of tears and excitement. The house looked much the same on the inside as well, though, much to my surprise, it looked smaller. I had seen so much of the world after I left. The house was clean, well-organized, and warm. Through much of my youth, this room had been my respite from the cold of the northern lands and those cursed fields. "'Oh, bless the gods that you finally come home!' she exclaimed, unable or unwilling to contain her joy. "'It's good to see you, mother,' I said, having regained my composure. Jas looked at me with a small, warm smile. Then she looked at my mother, trying to discern what parts of her features I had inherited. Then she grew sad, realizing she would have no such reunion with her own mother. I placed my hand on Jas's, and we exchanged a knowing look. I nodded to her as kindly as I could, holding back the tears of this reunion. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> "'This is my apprentice, Jas,' I said by way of introduction. "'Oh, an apprentice? You're moving up, aren't you, Mandite?' she proclaimed. "'Well, I get on,' I said. "'Soon you'll be a cardinal mage like your brother,' she gushed. Then she set off to make tea. Jas looked at me with incredulity. She'd worked out another truth. I had never informed my mother that I had been expelled from the collegium, and apparently Xavier hadn't found the time to do so either.' If she didn't know that, she also didn't know that I had been banished from the sovereign duchy of Eldemy altogether. I looked at Jas and sort of rolled my eyes and shrugged. She gave me a wide-eyed, insistent glare. "'You never told her you were exiled!' she hissed. "'I hardly had the time,' I hissed back. "'I was running for my life.' "'I made some biscuits yesterday, Mandite, your favorite, Bitterberry,' my mother called from across the room." The gods must have known you were coming and whispered to me whilst I cooked. She crossed the room and placed a plate of bitterberry biscuits on the table, saying, The tea is almost ready. You've got to tell her, Jas pressed in a whisper. No, there's no point to it, I replied. My mother returned a few minutes later with cups of tea. We sat and drank tea and munched on biscuits in blissful silence. All the while, Jas was gesturing with her eyes to break the news to my mother. I broke the silent repartee with my own counterstroke. Did you know that poor Jas is an orphan, mother? My mother replied with a pitiful sigh. It's true. Her mother was taken from her when Jas was but a small child. She was living on the land and the kindness of others when I found her. I believe she will be a very talented mage one day, I continued. She placed her hands on Jas's hand and said, You poor dear, growing up without a mother is no way for a child to go through life, especially for one so young. That's very kind of you, mistress, Jas replied. Oh, don't be so formal, dear, she said. Then her eyes blinked in realization. How about you call me grandma? Daughter of my youngest son, or close enough— I'll never see any other grandchildren, the gods know. Jas smiled, but then she looked confused. Xavier doesn't have any children? Jas asked. Oh, no. And Mandite won't give me any grandchildren either, my mother replied. Why is that? Jas asked. Didn't Mandite tell you? She asked. Then she looked a bit embarrassed. 
I suppose that's a conversation between you and Mandite, dear. Have another biscuit. My mother asked us to stay for dinner, but I told her we couldn't. When she pressed for a reason, I told her we were on a special mission for the Duke. This impressed her and filled her with even more pride. Although we didn't stay for dinner, I did spend some time talking with her and catching up. I managed to tell her I was living out on the Outer Isles. I said it was for research purposes, which wasn't entirely untrue. She told me about the farmhands she had hired after I left, and how she had to fire several of them, and how several good ones left for better pay. She had managed to save enough money to buy the land from the Baron of Ecoha Smirt, which meant she no longer had to pay him rent. This made her far more financially secure, which I found to be a great relief. I'm sorry I haven't been able to stay in touch, but Ecoda Isle is very far and no longer part of the duchy. Couriers bound for Eldamy are rare, and those bound for Ecoda Smurf are well nigh unheard of, I explained. Oh, don't worry, dear, she said. It's good enough that you're here now. I worry about my youngest baby. I gave her a weary smile. I was the baby of the family, though I was nearly in my fortieth year. And now that you're home, you can ride again, she continued. The bottom fell out of my stomach as I realized there was a very real possibility this might be the last time I would ever see my mother. I might have to confront a three thousand year old necromancer, and the likelihood of me surviving that encounter was actually rather slim. I had to tell her that, at least. Mother, I started, we're on a very dangerous mission. I can't give you details. And I'm sure you understand why. Her face blanched, and she struggled to sit down in the chair without hitting the floor. What do you mean, Manny? she said, using my childhood name. We're doing something for the Duke, for Eldamy, and I might not make it back, I started. Oh, my, she said quietly. Xavier is also involved, though he is very far away and part of a different front. I said, struggling to find the right word without divulging anything. Xavier, too, she whispered. You won't lose both of us, mother. That would be very unlikely. But it is possible you may lose one of us, I said, and I wasn't sure why I said it so flatly. I certainly didn't want to worry her, but I also didn't want her to not hear from one of us ever again and not know why. Is it really that dangerous? she asked. It is, mother, I admitted. Xavier would want to spare you the worry, as would I, but we have to do what we're doing. It could mean the end of the duchy if we don't do it. I hope you can understand that. She looked down at her half full cup of tea. Then she said, I do understand. You are both important to the Duke, and you do important work, though neither of you can seem to tell me anything specific. Neither of us can say anything. We're sworn to secrecy. But if we don't do this, tens of thousands could die, maybe more, I said. Her mouth became a flat line. I do understand the mathematics of one mother grieving for a lost child versus ten thousand mothers grieving. I truly do. But why does it have to be me? Gods be damned. Why does it have to be me? She said with a shuddering sob. I took her wrinkled, aged, yet soft hand in mine. I felt the all too familiar warmth of her touch, and it gave me strength. You raised mages, mother, and while that brings pride, 
"'It does not come without cost,' I said gently. "'Oh, Manny!' she said, holding back tears. "'I know, Mother, I know,' I said, holding back tears myself. "'Jas excused herself, but she didn't escape a strong, fierce hug from my mother before she walked out. "'She seems like a sweet girl,' my mother said. "'She is. She's had a hard life, but it should get easier now,' I said. "'Take care of her and yourself,' she said. "'I will, mother. I love you. I love you, too. I walked outside, closing the door behind me. I almost began sobbing, but then Jas accosted me. "'You're awful, Mandite,' she said as we walked away from the farmhouse. "'I beg your pardon,' I replied, blinking back tears. "'You lied to that nice old lady who loves you so. You're awful,' she said. "'What are you talking about?' I demanded. "'You didn't tell her you were expelled or exiled?' she demanded. "'I didn't lie. I omitted the truth. "'Besides, Xavier obviously came up with some sort of story or another, "'and I don't know what it is. "'If I told her the truth, she would have been disappointed, "'not to mention the fact that she would know that Xavier had been lying to her for years,' I said. "'And what's this she said about no children?' Jess pressed further. "'More secrets you're hiding, no doubt.' "'What?' I asked. "'She said neither you nor Xavier would have children.' "'What's that about?' she demanded. "'Well, I didn't think you were old enough for it to be a concern,' I said. "'Well, you might as well tell me now,' she said as she stormed down the road to where our traveling companions waited. "'Mages are forbidden to marry. Well, technically we're forbidden to have children. But if you're not having children, there's no point in getting married,' I said. "'What?' she shouted. "'You didn't think that was something I might want to know?' How young do you think I am? I'm nearly old enough to marry. When were you going to mention that? On my bloody wedding day? Jas fumed. I've never done this before, Jas. I've never been a mentor to an apprentice. There are so many little details. I learned most of them at the Collegium. My mentor there told me some of it, sure, but most I learned in my studies, I said defensively. She fumed for a bit before she spoke again. "'So why can't mages have children?' I sighed. Then I explained. "'It can cause confluences if mages marry and procreate. "'Even more so if two mages marry,' I explained. "'What's a confluence?' she said impatiently. "'All mages, all known mages, are born from what we refer to as mundane parents, "'people with no magical talent.' If a mage has a child, it's likely he or she will produce a more powerful mage, and if two mages procreate, they will produce a very powerful mage. And if those mages were to procreate, and so on, you'd end up with veritable gods walking the earth. This makes non-mages very anxious, I said. So, no mages have children? she pressed. None that we know of, at least, I said. It's possible some have secret offspring somewhere— "'though if too many very talented new students "'present themselves to the masters of the Collegium, "'they will certainly grow suspicious. "'Discovering the rule-breakers wouldn't be difficult. "'It's pretty simple magic to discover familial lines. "'Were there any? "'Any of these confluences?' she asked. "'I'm sure there have been. "'Certainly, before the days of the patents of magic, "'it was probably quite common. "'Mages might have agreed to bring a confluence into the world.' It could have been quite commonplace. 
They might even arrange for their offspring to marry other confluences. Before the patents were established, there were likely quite a few very powerful mages wandering the world, swaying the minds of nations, bending whole populations to their wills. That's likely one of the main reasons the patents were established. The mundanes governing Eldamy were tired of being dictated to by veritable gods, I said. It must have been awful then for mundane people, she mused. I'm sure it was occasionally. Hell, if you look at history books from centuries ago before the patents, the names of great mages were commonplace in those pages. They were mentioned more often than dukes or kings. They set the course of history in those days, I said with a bit of sad nostalgia. No, I hadn't experienced those times. But what must it have been like to be a mage whose power rivaled kings? Jas eyed me suspiciously. Those don't sound like the good old days to me, she said flatly. I'm sure there was a downside, I said, avoiding her gaze. Is there anything else I need to know? Anything else you've failed to mention? she asked. Nothing that comes to mind. If I had patents to consult, I could tell you for certain, but I don't. All those restrictions are spelled out in the patents, I said. She was quiet for a while. I'm sorry for snapping, Mandite. I know this can't be easy for you, but I appreciate you doing it, she said. That's good of you, Jas. Should I remember anything else? I will tell you at once, I promise, I replied. Do you think Xavier would let me read his patents, or Samana, or some other mage? I should like to know what I'm getting into, without any more surprises, she said. That's possible. We could copy them down for reference. The cardinal mages would probably be relieved that my apprentice was taking an interest in earning her patents, I said dryly. No doubt, she said with a smile. Chapter 17 Jas and I joined Kidal, Dale, and the twins beyond the settlements to the east of Ecohusmert. In our absence, they had procured fresh mounts and supplies. They waited for us at the base of a small rocky knoll. Jas said you needed high ground. This seems to be about as high as it gets around here, Kidal said as we approached. Though he was now dressed in his cold weather clothes, he was shivering. It would be another few months before the snows started. But the air was certainly growing cold, and he was not used to such climbs. "'That's very good. Thank you, Jas,' I said, preparing to again cast the scry upon Marwaleth's stone. "'Can I try the scrying?' Jas asked. "'I've been reading up on the forces of the body and magic. I think I can do it.' "'Not this time, Jas. It's too dangerous,' I said. "'But I would practice the forces a bit first, she said. It's not your command of the forces that's in question, Jas. It's the target, I began. Xavier and Samana were correct that Maroleth could trace back a scry. Best let me handle it this time. I'll walk you through it later, with a less dangerous target. She frowned, and I frowned back. Xavier and Samana had been correct. Maroleth could trace my scry. If Jas put too much power in the scry, it would be rather easy for our foe to use that connection to pinpoint our location. By now, he was preparing to engage the Lord Field Marshal's army, and he might well be looking for some kind of flanking maneuver. "'I'll need some help with this, if you all don't mind,' I announced. The truth was, I had not considered Maroleth tracing a scry until Xavier and Samana mentioned it. After all, 
I hadn't graduated, and I missed nearly three years of magical training in theory. But I was able to piece together why they were concerned. This time, I would barely allow any of the force of magic out, which would make it very difficult to trace. But it would also require help to get an accurate heading. Is this null on the map? I asked. It is, answered Bozel. Good, I said. I'll need three stakes, I should think. We'll place the first before I begin the scry. Once I cast the scry, someone will need to plant the second stake. You'll need to work fast, as the stone will only lift for a brief moment. Torum walked over to a felled tree and snapped off a few thin branches. He handed two to his brother and ascended the knoll with the third. Then he hammered it into the ground at the highest point on the knoll. He straightened up and gave me an impatient gesture. I hurried up the knoll. Can you split the top of the stake, Torum? I asked. He pulled out his sword and pressed the blade against the top of the stake and pushed, splitting it down a few inches. Perfect. Thank you, Torum. I said. I pulled the stone from my purse and tied a leather cord to it. I threaded the cord through the split in the stake. As I did this, the others followed me up to the top of the knoll. Bozel, please place the second stake exactly under the stone as it lifts up. It will only stay there for a moment, so you'll need to act quickly and make sure you line up the top of the stake with the stone. I explained. Understood, mage," he said matter-of-factly. He knelt in front of me, holding the makeshift stake in one hand and a stone in the other. I held the other end of the leather cord, so the forces had a conduit to the stone, and I began summoning the forces and casting the scry spell. Though my eyes were closed. I heard the first stake creak, as the stone attempted to find its original enchanter. I heard Bozel pounding the second stake into the ground. I opened my eyes and looked down. We now had two points creating a line. I knelt down, and looked from the top of the first stake to the second. There was no obvious landmark that lined up with the two stakes, but I could see where the winding road leading east from Ikoha Smirt intersected with my imaginary line. Can someone take the third stake and go out to that bend in the road? I asked. Gods, you do things the hard way, Dale muttered as she approached the first stake. She pulled a compass from her purse and placed it atop the first stake. Torum, she called. Get your map. Torum pulled a large parchment from his purse and placed it on the ground. He also pulled a compass from his purse, placing it on the map. Then he rotated the map until he was satisfied. Ready, Dale? Torum said. It's a bit shy of eighty-six degrees. Dale said. Torum produced a spool of thread from his purse and pulled out a length to hold against the map. Bozel walked over and picked up his compass, holding it over the map. A little to the left, Bozel said. Not that much. Back to the right, little more. Torum held one end of the thread on the map. Marking the knoll upon which we all stood, he moved the other in accordance with his brother's instructions until he said, "Right there." Torum stretched the thread and placed his other hand across the map. The thread almost exactly intersected a red wax X that someone had placed on the map. A second mark stretching from the city of Eldamy to that same X was already scrawled on the map. "It's the old watch cave," Torum said. That's what the old man thought. Good place to mount an invasion from. Watch cave, I asked. 
It's high up on Cordell Mountain. Someone carved an observation deck into the top of that mountain. Never been there, only heard of it. It's hard to get to, I hear tell, Bozel explained. I'd never heard of this watch cave, nor Cordell Mountain. The hundreds, perhaps thousands, of mountains that made up the Wall Mountains had names, but I'd never bothered to learn any of them. Who is this someone? I asked. Who exactly built this watch cave? Not sure, Bozel said. The Lord Field Marshal said it was mentioned in some of the earliest writings of the Sovereign Duchy of Eldamy back around the year 1000, but it was already there then, and long abandoned. Probably dates back to the old empire. The old man thinks generals from the old empire used it to watch for invading ships from the sea. How could that help? Jas interrupted while looking at the map. She traced a line from the watch cave to where the location of the Eldamy army was marked. How far is that? A hundred miles? No one can see that far. A bit more than that. But you're correct, no one can see that far, Bozel said. Line of sight doesn't always have to mean with insight, especially if mages are doing the seeing, I said. They say there's some artifact from the days of the old empire up there, Dale said. An artifact, both Jass and I said. Yeah, it's supposed to let you see great distances, Dale explained. Like a spyglass? Kidal asked. I'm not sure, Dale admitted. One of my order... She seemed to struggle to find the right word. Now, someone who went up there once says it's very old and enchanted, she added. I had an odd feeling. Throughout my entire life, I had never heard rumors of Empire-era artifacts, and now, within a fortnight, I'd collected one and heard rumor of another, in a place we might go to, no less. That was a strange coincidence. I wondered if this information came from Xavier, rather than a member of her order. That would make sense. The other Empire-era artifact, the mirror in my cottage on Lover's Isle, had been in the possession of Cardinal Mage Basma. During our meeting at the palace, we were given no information about how our account was consistent with other facts the Cardinal Mages had discovered. I didn't even know what the mirror did, or the orbs that went with it. Yes, Cardinal Mage Basma, the Duchy's most senior war mage, was bringing the artifact from somewhere in the south to Eldamy, but to what end? Perhaps... It was preparation for the very assault that was about to commence. Had Basma's death interfered with the assault on Marwaleth's army? Or his keep at the watch cave? I began to wonder if these things might have gone better if I had just stayed in my rooms on Ekota Isle and not gotten involved. We've navel-gazed long enough, Torum announced. You should get that information to Cardinal Mage Birdstaff. Uh, you're quite right, I said pulling the brass cup from my purse. I held it to my mouth and spoke loudly. Xavier, can you hear me? I repeated my address over and over for nearly ten minutes. They may be having a hard time of it, Bozel said grimly. They tried to wait for Cardinal Mage Basma, but his ship was overdue, so they had to go without him. Too bad, Master Basma is a formidable battle mage, probably the best. I've never seen a mage so powerful on the battlefield, Torum agreed. We served with him about ten years ago during the last campaign against the Orc Vitae.
I looked to Cadal, who returned my gaze. We, of course, knew where Cardinal Mage Basma was. He had been killed by the Scarab's first and only cannon volley against the Duchess Adina. I hadn't lamented Basma's death when it happened, but I was now. At the end of my first year at the Collegium, the masters pulled aside the two students in our class who were most adept at fire magic. I'd learned later that they were made apprentices to Cardinal Mage Basma. Basma was old then, and I shuddered to think how ancient and frail a man he had been when one of the scarab's cannons struck him down. The masters of the Collegium often mentioned Cardinal Mage Basma as the most powerful battle mage in written history. Written history extended back about 10,000 years. If Maroleth was 3,000 years old, then Basma was the most powerful battle mage in more than three of Maroleth's lifetimes. While we didn't celebrate Basma's death, we certainly didn't mark it with the respect it deserved. He was a mage of historic significance and likely a confluence. He was literally a legend within his own lifetime. I watched him turn the very ground upon which the Orkvitae vanguard stood into fire and boiling mud, almost lava, Torm said. I've never seen a mage so powerful. And mayhap you shan't see his peer within this age, I said, glancing briefly at Jas. She looked away quickly. During our journey north, I had begun to wonder if Jas was such a confluence. With each and every force I tested her, she showed mastery within hours, and such mastery would take an ordinary apprentice months to attain. No one, not even Samana, picked up a mastery of the forces that quickly. I wondered if Basma had excelled that quickly when he was training at the Collegium fifty or more years ago. I continued trying to hail Xavier in the brass cup. Finally, a cacophony of an obvious battle erupted from the cup, so loud that all of us could hear it. To my horror, the voice that came through was not Xavier's. It was Samana. "'This is Samana! Xavier is down! Do you have the location?' She shouted over the clanging of metal, the thunder of cannon, and the unsettling screams of wounded and terrified men. "'I do!' I shouted. "'It's the watch cave on Cordell Mountain! How is Xavier? Will he live?' "'I will convey the message to the Lord Field Marshal,' Samana replied, either not hearing or not deigning to answer my inquiry. Then the battle sounds muffled and disappeared. "'That was quick.' Bozel said, giving a significant glance to his brother. "'Quite right,' Torum replied. "'I'm glad I'm here and not there, for now at least.' "'You think we should start heading out now, not wait for orders?' Dale said seriously. I glanced at Kadal, and his face was pure intensity. He, far more than I, was familiar with battle, and he heard the cacophony from the brass cup. From his expression... I gleaned that things were not going well for the Lord Field Marshal's army. "'This is going to go badly,' he said ruefully. "'Well,' I began, "'it seems like we're going to get that order eventually. Might as well get a head start.' Torum stood. "'Well, let's mount up and go, then.' Then Torum looked at me. "'Take only what you think we'll need,' he said. "'Nothing extra. We need to ride fast and hard.' Without looking at her, I said to Jas. Take only food and water, Jas, nothing else. We need to leave everything else. 
What of my book on the forces? she protested. We've got some oilcloth, Bozel said. If what you need to leave is truly dear, we can wrap it up and bury it. She got up and started pulling things from her pack. I should suit up, Kidal said, heading toward his mount. In less than an hour, we buried what we could not carry and were riding east. There's a town due east of here. If we ride fast, we should make it by nightfall, I said. We all mounted up and began riding east toward a tiny village called Dex Majan. If you would like to find out more about my writing, go to stewvenable.com.